Are you ready? Are you sitting down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Top divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. Episode 35 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We have a terrific show today and two great guests. First, I'm joined on this week's docket by leading Washington, D.C. family law attorney, Regina DeMeo. Together, Regina and I are going to break down the jaw-dropping and popular Netflix documentary, The Tinder Swindler. And then on the featured guest segment of the Shine On Podcast, I sit down with journalist and author Sushma Subramanian, who is our featured guest on this week's episode of the Shine On Podcast. Sushma is the author of the book, How to Feel, The Science and Meaning of Touch. We are going to talk to Sushma about her book released in 2021, published during the pandemic, a time of isolation, a time of loneliness, where physical touch and human interaction was something we craved, something we missed. And perhaps the past two years will make us rethink the sense of touch and the role that it plays in our lives, marriages, and relationships. I'm also going to talk with Sushma about her article featured in the Washington Post magazine from earlier this year titled, Who Gets the Child?, which has grabbed well-deserved attention and fueled the discussion on equal shared parenting time. Producer Dave, let's get into the docket where we kick off episode 35 by taking a look at the Netflix documentary, The Tinder Swindler, a scary and eye-opening look into the world of online dating. And now, let's see what's on the docket. All right, Evan, this week's edition of the docket is kind of a special one. We'll be considering the case of The Tinder Swindler, which is the subject of a very popular Netflix documentary, which I've seen. But I understand you have someone joining us to talk with us about it. Dave, that's right. On this week's docket segment of the Shine Up podcast, I'm thrilled to have with me top Washington, D.C. family law attorney, Regina DeMeo. Regina, welcome to the Shine Up podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Regina, it's great to have you on. And you're going to help us break down the network documentary that everyone is talking about, The Tinder Swindler, which was Netflix's second most watched show the week of February 21st to February 28th. And I have to tell you, I watched the entire thing with my wife. The first thing she says to me after the show is, wow, the online dating world is a hell of a lot different today than it was even a few years ago. And Regina, this Netflix documentary really shines a light on the dark side of dating and really just how scary it can be. So what were your thoughts when you watched it? So... I'm sure you've had the same experience, right? I mean, I've been doing uh, divorce law for over 20 years, and, and this happens a lot, right? People meet online after two months of dating, they get engaged, they get married, they get pregnant, they buy a house. It's like this whirlwind romance. And then all of a sudden, you know, after a year, they start to see the real side of this person. And it's like, oh, this is not what I signed up for. So in, in a lot of ways, obviously, it didn't surprise me. I'm like, I've heard this story a million times. This is just a different set of characters, right, in a different stage. But the 
but the play is the same, right? Have, haven't you seen that also? Yeah, I, I've seen it in my practice and it's troubling and it's concerning. And look, there's dating where people don't show up or there's dating where there's not a second date or a third date, but this is something deeper, something scary, and it's problematic in many ways. Yeah, I mean, to me, the more problematic thing is I think a lot of people can watch this and it's easy to look and say, how stupid could you be, right? How could you turn over all this money to this person that you just met online? You know, I wouldn't be that stupid or this must be like one in a million and that's why they're showcasing it, but it's just like one in a million. Okay, really? You and I are one in a million because there's only 1.3 licensed practicing attorneys in the United States, but these (laughs) cases are really not one in a million. They're not. And in documentaries like this, there's a Washington Post article in your hometown paper, which we're going to talk about, really shine a light on this behavior, the course of control, the manipulation, really the fraud that takes place in the online dating world. What troubled you the most about the behavior that you saw from the Tinder swindler? The very first red flag was they go on their first date and then he says, oh, why don't you come with me and get on this plane? And then she she actually goes and packs and gets on the plane. I'm like, what are you doing? You don't even know <laughs> this person. And then she gets on the plane and he's there with his daughter and his, I guess, ex-wife or the baby mama, whatever. And I'm thinking, okay, major red flag. <laughs> what are you doing meeting someone's child after knowing them for less than, you know, even a few weeks? Love bombing is a strategic use of romantic gestures that are there to win you over. Whether it's the flowers or the gestures or just the over the top behavior, it's quite easy for someone to fall into that trap. Right. The takeaway that's missing is one, you got to slow it down, right? You don't need to move at warp speed. You're not going to know somebody for real until you see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I like when I get into my first fight with someone because it tells me so much, right? Are you able to have a respectful conversation even though you have different opinions? Regina, I would think it's easy to forget all that because the search for love, wanting to be in a relationship, wanting to be loved, wanting to be part of that, it's so easy to just get swept up in the flights, the gestures, the flowers. You mentioned love bombing and you have a great blog that you recently wrote. Tell us about that. So I just want people to to understand that it's natural when someone is showering you, even if it's not material gifts, right? Getting that good morning text (laughs) or, you know, how's your day going? And these little emojis. And then at night, someone calling to check in it really makes you feel special. And it just takes you to this really awesome place. And it's so easy to get sucked in by that, right? And I guess this is my second big tech takeaway is that now that we're all so much more isolated as a result of COVID, right? And we've all suffered setbacks. And and now we're all so much more vulnerable than ever before. Producer Dave, I'm going to turn it over to you. You're going to play a few clips from the... Netflix documentary, The Tinder Swindler. Yep, we've got three clips lined up in this first one. I think you'll hear one of the Tinder Swindler's victims going on what she thinks will be an amazing hunt for a lavish apartment that he's going to pay for. But let's take a listen. It's just the best feelings, you know, when you have someone and both 
are on the same wavelength. Time for apartment number two. Living room where we can watch movies and stuff. I was dreaming of how it would be for the two of us to live together. And then you have this awesome kitchen. And here is... Simon tells me that the budget is $15,000 per month. Third apartment. So I'm going all the rounds in these amazing apartments, and sometimes I even have Simon with me on FaceTime. It was just a really nice way to connect with him, even though he wasn't there to do it together. What the listeners didn't hear was just the texts that were displayed on the screen between the two and just expressing their mutual love and how excited they are to live together. And so your thoughts, Evan? Look, it's the classic example where Gina touched on it about love bombing, the gestures, the emojis, the behavior. I mean, if you look at the scene in the clip, she was looking at an apartment thinking that she was going to spend the rest of her life with this person. And he wasn't even there. She was putting in the work, spending the time, spending the energy. He's saying to her, I love you. I miss you. I can't spend the rest of way to spend the rest of my life with you. It's the classic case of love bombing. And Regina, what are your thoughts? We see it all the time. You and I get to see everybody's texts. We get to see these cards and obviously the credit card statements with all of these lavish gifts and trips. This is not actually extraordinary. It's quite ordinary. You know, the the Bad Vegan is another recent Netflix uh, series that came out that totally sucked me in. This is a warden school grad who then went to culinary school and had the one of the hottest restaurants in New York City. And then she meets this ridiculous guy online and winds up losing over a million dollars. Her business is gone. And oh yeah, she winds up in jail. (laughs) And you're right. Unfortunately, it happens much more than I think people realize. I have to add that to my must-watch list coming up this weekend. <laughs> yeah, no, it, honestly, it did suck me in. And so this is like my, my third big takeaway from these things, right? So we all know, well, maybe you and I, but not like the regular person. We know that high conflict personalities make up about 15% of the US population, right? And the reason we know that is because those high conflict personalities wind up in court. So those are the 15% high conflict cases, right? And that can be verified through an NIH study. I'm not making it up. So add to that, all those people that go with undiagnosed and untreated depression, anxiety, or bipolar disorder. I'm going to say that that's another 15%. Okay, I'm taking a huge leap here. But that means one out of every three people you meet online has some sort of major issue. That's an an eye-opening statistic. Thank you. (laughs) These are not extraordinary cases. They happen to be getting a lot of light right now, and I'm really happy for that. But you and I see this all the time. Producer Dave, clip number two. Right. Here's uh, clip number two, which involves a voicemail from the mysterious man and a reaction. It'll speak for itself. Here we go. How much money do you take now? $250,000. $250,000. That's not what I signed up for. It's a lot. It's a lot of money. <laughs> I know you have done uh, too much for me, for us, for everything. And I know you're tired and I know you want to be together, which, of course, I do want as well. 
I understand that, but everything will be all right. I was getting so tired and annoyed and that I just needed some kind of money. That's when he says that you can come to, to Amsterdam and then I can give you a check. So why don't we end the clip there as the mystery continues to unravel, the stress continues to build in these victims. Re- Regina, tell us what your thoughts are on uh, what you just saw. So I I would love to be able to, have, at that moment, stopped her and said, please look at this website. I think it's out of the FOG. And FOG stands for fear, obligation, and guilt. And those are the three tactics that, manipulators use to to try and get their way with you right they're either going to like threaten you in some way so you stay because of fear or do something that they want you to do out of fear because you feel obligated in some way after everything that they've done to win you over or you know it's because you feel guilty there was an article in the washington post one of your hometown papers by lisa bonos the title of the article is how to avoid falling for a tinder swindler or a fake german heiress As we talked about, what more can be done to get the message out there, to be aware of this behavior? Because people are not going to stop dating. People are not going to stop going on Tinder. You see it in the documentary. Everyone who was a victim still went out and they wanted to find love, search for love, and they pursued the search for love online. So what's the message? What's the takeaway to really be aware when you are dating, when you are searching for love? not to find yourself in situations like this. So one of my favorite lines from Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, which I wasn't expecting to find in that book because it's all about how you know we as women are supposed to step up and lean into the business world, right? But one of my favorite lines that she says is, one of the most important decisions you will make is who your life partner will be. And that cannot be understated. I mean, it's just, I mean, it it cannot be overstated, right? I mean, the point is who you choose to have as a partner could financially ruin you. And you and I see it every day. So especially when it comes to money, I would say just, you know, be super clear about what, what can you actually afford? And, you know, how much are you willing to put into a house together or whatever, you know, the, the proposal is of joining finances, maybe have a talk with a lawyer about doing a prenup. I mean, this is why I love doing prenups, right? Because it, it is one very clean and easy way to protect yourself, especially with respect to alimony, because there's no other way to get a waiver or set caps. And, you know, I mean, yeah, you have to just like, one of my friends likes to say, you know, like, follow your heart, believe with your head. Right. And so constantly doing these check-ins, if you, if you think something's weird, talk to a therapist. I mean, I can't like say enough to how many of my clients have benefited from therapy after suffering a tragic event. I mean, you can't recover from trauma without professional help. That's my opinion, you know, and all of these women and all of our clients are going, you see them cycle through the grief cycle, which no one taught me about in law school, by the way. I don't know about you. Did you no, hear about that? No, absolutely. No. <laughs> right? And, and yet we deal with these people all the time. First, there's the denial phase. Like, this really isn't happening to me. Then there's the bargaining. Like, okay, I've, I've sunk in so much money into the, or, you know, time and energy into this relationship. And you start bargaining with yourself and the other person to try and, like, figure out how you can still maintain this 
finally you get to that moment where you just get really freaking angry, right? And you are gonna blow, and then you're gonna go into like a sadness phase. And, and finally, the fifth stage of the grief cycle is acceptance, where you realize, all right, <laughs> this situation sucks, I need to cut my losses, and that's when we get to them, right? No, it's true, Regina. This was absolutely fantastic. Such wonderful, such brilliant advice. Thank you so much for coming on the Shana podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. We're up to the portion of the show where Evan gives his thoughts on the issues of the day. It's time for the Shine On Spotlight, where Evan tackles the subject of depositions in family law cases. The Shine On Spotlight. Dave, this week we shine a spotlight on depositions. I love depositions. Let me say that again. I love depositions. I absolutely love depositions. What's not to love? (laughs) Depositions are a wonderful opportunity to educate yourself as the attorney, to develop a greater understanding of the case. It's an opportunity to ask the opposing party under oath questions and to call for the production of documentation that has not yet been produced. It's an opportunity to lock the opposing party into sworn testimony that can later be used at trial on cross-examination to impeach the other side's credibility if the story changes. Are you lying today? Or were you lying when you were under oath at my office when I took your deposition? And so many times, so many times, taking a deposition leads to settlement. Depositions expose the cracks in the other side's foundation and themes and case. And I can't tell you how many times after a deposition, the case magically settles. And lastly, it gives the other side a preview of what cross-examination a trial may look like. But instead of being in my office, it will be in a courtroom in front of a judge. As we are finally getting to the light, at the end of this pandemic tunnel, many of us are wondering how our world will look as we transition back to our normal day-to-day lives. Will we still be shaking hands during business meetings? Will we hug our friends after not seeing them for months or even years? One thing about the pandemic that has been greatly affected is our relationship with touch. Our featured guest today is a science and health journalist and author, and she's been featured in Elle, The Atlantic, The Washington Post Magazine, Discover, and many other national media outlets. Her book, How to Feel, The Science and Meaning of Touch, explores what she refers to as the underrated sense of touch and how if we start to embrace touch, we can feel more connected to the world. Sushma, welcome to the Shine Up podcast. It's great to have you with us. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. As am I and such, but we're going to get into your work, your articles, and your wonderful book, which was released in 2021. But first, I want to ask you, what has it been like for you to be a science and health journalist during the pandemic and to have a book released about touch during a time when touch and human physical interaction have been both restricted and limited? Yeah, it was kind of bizarre how it all happened because I was really working on my book for you know five years. And then it was set to be released and then the pandemic happened and all of a sudden my 
editor was like, well, maybe we should include something about this. And so I quickly wrote a new uh, conclusion for it. But what, what I really emphasize in my book is that like while the pandemic has made us all think more carefully about uh, the role of touch in our lives and what it means to to not have touch or in-person presence. This has really uh, been an issue for much longer. So we've been kind of on a long trajectory for centuries, really, towards a more visually focused culture and less tactile. Um, personally, during the pandemic, I my, my daughter was born at the very beginning of it. And so it was also a time... Thank you. So it was also a time for me to to really think about closeness with her and just like, you know, we were kind of locked in all, you know, the three of us together. And so it was really a very intimate time for us kind of, you know, not being exposed to to many other people. Sure. And, And you hear so many stories like the one you just mentioned about what people went through, the positive, the incredible moments And also, you know, loss and transition. And really, when you look at the past two years, this has really shined the spotlight on touch. And so let's get into your book and and tell us, Sushma, what inspired you to write the book? Well, I'm a science writer, and a lot of my ideas come from my day-to-day experiences. And it's really just about noticing myself, noticing things. And so there was this one day when I was like messing around with the top of my desk, it was feeling a a little bit loose one day when I was working. And so as I was uh, trying to fix it, I started to think about, well, what part of this is my sense of touch? Is it the, like just the feeling on the surface of my skin? What about what I'm experiencing in my muscles? Would it really, would I really understand what I was feeling if it wasn't kind of this entire bodily experience? And it was just that one thought that led me down this this very deep rabbit hole because it was strange to me. I thought that I understood what my touch was ever since I was in kindergarten, right? right? And to have this thought, I was like, well, that's weird. I really don't know anything about it. And then, I mean, that was really the spark for the idea. But then I did this story for Discover Magazine um, that was dealing with the science of haptics and how to bring more tactile sensations to our technology. And then I realized there's this whole world of touch research to to delve into that a lot of people don't know about. And so in the book, you state that touch is an underappreciated sense. Why, why do you think that is? Well, that goes back to, I think, Plato. In, in just classical Western philosophy, there's been this idea that there is a hierarchy of the senses and Touch was considered the lowest sense because it was most connected with the body and just visceral reactions and, you know, things like hunger and sexual urges, whereas vision was seen as the highest sense because you experience it at at a remove and it's a way to, to, to think more intellectually and to appreciate beauty. So that was the highest sense. And even though that's a belief that, 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 it feels like it's from ages ago. There are ways that that belief has been absorbed by uh, Christian thought and then also just in day-to-day practices, right? Like the technology that we've built is based on this fundamental idea, right? So much of our technology is audio-visual and these are distanced senses, right? And so we've just uh, had this 
greater appreciation for what we've thought of as the higher senses. And so, you mentioned that during the pandemic, your daughter was born. Tell us the impact and what you really discovered about touch and becoming a mother and, you know, everything that, that, you know, from your research, and you mentioned you were researching and started writing the book even before the pandemic. What did you learn about touch during this time as it relates to, to your own personal life? So in my own personal life, I had been working very hard to, to, to repair some of the issues that I had regarding touch. So like in the process of writing the book, actually another driver behind why I wrote the book was that I'm kind of touch averse. And I thought that was sort of interesting. Like my, my father, when I was younger, used to call me a touch me not after that fern that folds in on itself when it's, you know, like when you brush it with your hand. And, and, and I really was trying to explore through the book why that. And so I had attended before my daughter was born massage school for my research. And I started to think about, well, like what makes some people touch averse and, you know, some people gravitate towards touch more. And while some of it is just innate and it's fine to be a person who does not like to be touched, uh, I started to realize that it was really, it had a lot to do with my fears about things like intimacy and, you know, having people not respect my boundaries and all of that. And, And the experience in massage school is very profound for me because while my approach to all these fears before was simply to avoid touch. In massage school, I actually had to push through that fear and touch other people. And the interesting experience of that is I was able to have to, to have touch and touch others just kind of factually. Like we're doing this as a class assignment. There's no like questions about why you're touching me and whether this is going to go too far or anything like that. So uh, just and and also there's a lot of uh, practice that we have in massage school in terms of communication of like is this okay or you know is this what you want or it should be stopped and just all of that real practice in communicating about the touch I wanted was really great preparation I think for uh, hopefully my daughter having a much more healthy relationship with her sense of touch than I had. The interesting thing about her is that she's also a little bit of a touch me not. So she's not a child who loves to be cuddled. And so I, I, that's fine. I I let her have her own, you know, whatever experience she wanted. And even though I would have really liked to (laughs) to hug her a lot more than I did. Now that she's a little bit older, she does come up and and, and hug my knees every once in a while, which is, which is fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And it's just, in the book, you describe yourself as an introvert. And in the book, you also talk about that most people don't realize that our senses are loaded with baggage from the past. So explain to us, how do our senses relate to our past experiences? Well, yeah, we have a lot of unconscious programming around our senses. And so there's an exercise that I have readers go through toward the end of the book where I have them imagine like the sensations that they experience at their, like, just close your eyes and just imagine your breakfast table. Like, what are the senses that come to mind? You know, do you smell things? Do you see things? What do you feel? And that can, that exercise can kind of tell you the senses through which you do the most of your thinking or the most of your sensory experiencing, right? And then you can kind of tease apart why 
you use your sensations in certain ways. So like you might think about what were the messages that you received early on in your life about, I mean, in this case, touch. Children are often told to to look but not to touch or that children should be uh, seen and not heard. And that gives you certain impressions about, you know, which senses are preferred over others. You know, girls and boys might be encouraged to touch in, in different ways. Women in general will touch each other more than, than men will, which that, that pretty much only happens in the context of sports, right? And so we, we have all this unconscious programming, basically, that I think it's worth looking at. Because while we think that we experience our senses just objectively, that we just take them in and experience the world the way it is, really a lot of this of the messages that we've received over time affect um, the way we touch. And I think the, really the most profound is how we experienced touch in our families, right? And, and for me, I, I have a, a family that's not really um, that big on emotions and that big on physical affection. And so that really affected for me the way that I became comfortable ex- uh, expressing myself with my body. And so that's absolutely fascinating talking about the history and the, and the past and, and family dynamics and, and really growing up. And I want to read a part of the forward in your book, and I think it, which is absolutely tremendous. And it's something I, I believe encapsulates how many of us are feeling during the pandemic. You stated in the forward that my daily practices reflected the way I thought about my presence in the world. Like many people who work from home, I lived in sweats. It didn't matter if I showered. It became easy for me to forget to drink water or sleep because I was so absorbed in the screen in front of me. I had to set reminders on my phone to get up and exercise so I could remain as a functioning human. I did it because I knew it was good for me, but I hardly ever felt the urge. There was no inner voice telling me to go out and remind myself my body was alive. And I think many people have experienced that during the pandemic. And so what was the moment where you realized whether it was writing the book or during the pandemic, that something was missing. And I'm curious on your thoughts as we now transition out of the pandemic, what impact do you see all of this happening on people's lives going forward? Yeah, well, the pandemic is an extreme kind of experience of deprivation of touch. And so hopefully it's made us all think about what it means to not have as much touch in our lives. And like sometimes you need that extreme experience to appreciate what's missing. I really had that realization just simply through writing my book. A great model for how to think about the loss of touch in our lives moving forward, I think comes from this like huge body of literature that's developed on unplugging from our devices. And what's so interesting about like the essays and books about this is that they they all have really similar themes. So the writers in in a lot of these cases will describe, you know, not using their devices as much and suddenly feeling more inside of themselves, more physically present in their bodies. And oftentimes they do things that are physical as a result. They they walk around and feel the, you know, the feeling of their footsteps or they dance and, you know, they experience all these sensory feelings that make them, that remind themselves of both 
pleasure and pain in their bodies. And so I think that that is an indicator of what can happen for people when, you know, when we return from this, this state of isolation to a more physically present experience. Like it's a time for, I think, a lot of people to really fully experience those sensations in their bodies for the first time in a while. And just, like I said earlier, notice themselves noticing these things, because the more that you have, like you, you allow yourself to experience touch and all those feelings in your body, the more you can be present with all like your deeper emotions. So things like sadness and happiness and all of that, because when we don't feel our bodies, we become less present to those emotions. So you talk about that exact thing in the book, you talk about how loneliness and the lack of physical contact can have a detrimental effect, not only on one's mental health, but also our physical health. Yeah, for sure. And a large part of that has to do with if you're not really paying attention to the sensations in your body, then then how can you fix them? Right? Like a, a large a thing that they taught us in massage school was that massage is not necessarily something that's going to make you feel better right away. Sometimes it makes you more aware there's a problem in your body sure. um, that you should spend uh, some time fixing. But in addition to that, there are all these chemical reasons why touch is good for you. So it releases these this flood of feel-good chemicals in your brain that make you happier and just contribute to wellness. And then also it reduces cortisol, which affects the immune response in your body. So your immune system improves when you um, experience more touch. And of course, it's important that it's wanted touch and right. not unwanted touch because of th these feel-good chemicals are not going to be elicited by touch that you don't really want. And so your journey to write this book, you mentioned it spans several years before the pandemic, during the pandemic. What surprised you, whether it's surprised you in your research, surprised you about what you learned about yourself, surprised you about how the book impacted and shaped the way you view the world? What, what, what surprised you throughout the journey? Well, I guess what surprised me most was how deeply ingrained a lot of the messaging around touch is like to me personally. Sure. I want to shift gears and I want to talk about a brilliant article you wrote for the Washington Post magazine in January of this year. The title of the article was Who Gets the Child? And I want to ask you, what motivated you to write this article? So I had written a story for Elle magazine several months before, and it was about alienation of affections lawsuits in North Carolina. And what that means is you can sue your husband or wife's lover for breaking up your marriage. And these, th this is a type of case that comes from English common law, and they don't really have these cases in England anymore. And most states in the United States don't have them either, but they are pretty prominent in North Carolina. Yeah, I was going to so say, about, in, in New York, where I practice, it's not, you know, it's not common, it's somewhat unheard of, and it's not something that would necessarily be recognized if someone tried to sue their spouse for divorce. Right. And so I, I just wrote about one case 
And it was a very unusual story for me, it, but it was something that I actually, I mean, my main motivator was that I could read the lawsuit while my newborn was asleep and still get work done um, <laughs> because this was not my usual subject matter, right? I'm a health and science journalist. Sure. I don't really write about family law, but once that story came out, I got a few emails from people and one of them included a suggestion that I write about the shared parenting movement. And this was an advocate for shared parenting. And when I went online to learn a little bit more about these legal changes, I honestly got so confused because whatever I read tended to come from this advocacy lens. And I was, I, and I thought, well, there's nothing that I'm reading here that really comes from the center that explains the subject to me well. And so I thought I should do that. And so it's fascinating because, and I want to talk about the article, because in it, you, you state that the current norm for custody situations, custody should be the best interest of the child, but the premise, it incentivizes parents to fight because it sets up a system of a winner or a loser. Tell us about your research and some of the interviews that you conducted to write the article. Sure. So yeah, like you were saying, going back in time, there there used to be this like, you know, the, the father got the child, this assumption, and then it switched to the, the mother got the child, and then we switched the best interest of the child. And the best interest of the child standard is um, kind of ambiguous, right? It's really up to a judge to decide what is in the best interest of a child. And because it's so unclear... It, I guess the argument is that it incentivizes the parents to fight in court. Sure. In, in terms of, you know, your research and the interviews, what did you learn about the court system and the way it incentivizes people to fight when there's a winner and a loser in the system? Typically, in family law, there's been this necessity, right, to where in families, there's typically historically been a primary breadwinner and then a a primary caregiver and family law has been has tried to create a balance through both child support and through parenting time that works in the best interest of the family families are shifting of course quite a bit and the both the breadwinning and the caregiving have become increasingly equal but not fully equal and so that has led to a lot of challenge in families in, in to, to figure out what the best um, balance is going to be. Sushman, I see this in my practice in New York, and you mentioned the best interest of the child, which is the standard in New York when a case is being litigated and it's in front of the judge. And you're right. There's a whole host of factors that a court is going to look at when a court issues any order, any decision on custody. And the overriding factor is what's in the child's best interest. Now, you mentioned in the article about the views of social scientists and why are social scientists somewhat divided when it comes to the notion that creating a shared parenting arrangement may be optimal and beneficial for families? It's so divided, I think, because there's really a need for more research on this. And I think in some ways, the pace of legislation on this is issue has outpaced the data 
on how well it's working, in large part because it's very, very hard to, to, to figure out why courts made certain decisions for certain families. And, and also this issue of parenting time is all it, it, it takes quite a bit of, of time to figure that out like a researcher looking case to case. But I think that a lot of these social scientists are driven by, I guess, ideology is what I've noticed, that there are researchers who are very much for shared parenting and that that's clearly their stance. And I think that 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 lens through which they see the data can be a little bit limiting. And then similarly, there are people who are just completely anti. And so a lot of this, uh, a lot of this research then is, you know, you can't really figure out what's truly going on. There just needs to be more research on it. Absolutely. And one of the interviews that caught my eye from reading the article was an interview that you conducted with child psychologist, Christine Adams. What were your thoughts on what she indicated, which was that the ideal custody situation is for the child to live with the most caregiving parent while the other has significant visitation. Yeah. And this is where it's so confusing because so much of, I I think the challenge with family law is that we approach it from our own experiences and understanding, I think within our own families, right? So so if you talk to people who had positive experiences with something like shared parenting, whether, you know, it was a marital or non-marital situation, you know, then then it, it sounds fantastic to them that shared parenting legislation would be taking place. And that might not be the case for someone who experienced it differently. And I think Christine Adams comes from the perspective that in a family that has has broken up, that there is often one high conflict person or one person who in in the the parental relationship tends to extract the emotional resources from the family and then another person who is the more caregiving person within the relationship. And oftentimes when you have these two personalities, the relationship won't work out, right? And then the challenge is how is that single, that parent on their own who tends to extract the emotional resources, how are they going to be a good parent to their child? And that is, you know, her perspective, but other people's perspective might be that both people in a parental relationship like this might each have their own challenges with caregiving and and that it's up to them to, to to work on themselves and both become better parents right and i think there might be truth in a lot of situations i do think that there might be a single high conflict parent who's leading to the the familial breakup and and in a lot of situations it might be something that both people are contributing right so it's really hard to make a general rule based on everybody and it, it is it's interesting because you interview for the article different people different backgrounds from all over the country i think there is a need for more research there is a need for further legislation on the area but definitely there needs to be more research uh, done in this particular area. Definitely. And and what was so interesting to me in writing this article and then and then reading the responses that people had was this this like I I just wrote what this couple had gone through and I guess I when I was writing it I intentionally wrote it in this way where I was like I was I was telling my editor like you know that 
that image of the, the black and blue dress and the white and gold dress, right? And people <laughs> were debating which one it is. Yep. And, and so I wanted the article to read in that way with people being able to have their own interpretation of whether the, the law was working for this family. And, and some people, you know, reached out to me and they, they were like, we're so happy. So the, the couple was Ashlyn and Jordan. And, and some people were like, we're so happy that this shared parenting movement was successful in Kentucky and that this worked out for them. And, and then Others were like, well, clearly the, you know, Jordan was using the law to coerce Ashlyn into an outcome that, that he wanted for their family. And so I think both are really inter interesting interpretations and, you know, both obviously come from people's own experience and their sure. own families. And you mentioned the, 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 the couple, you know, that was the focus of the article was from Kentucky where there is that presumption of shared parenting. Although one of the things that came up in the article is that there is an exception when there is domestic abuse and domestic violence. And so from your research and the interviews you conducted, how does domestic abuse or domestic violence play a role in states such as Kentucky, where there is this presumption that parenting time be shared? Yeah, well... That, that is an exception to the presumption, as, as there are a bunch of other uh, exceptions as well. Like if the parent, parents don't live near each other, that's sure. an exception. Or, you know, maybe one of the parents, their schedule doesn't allow for that to be, you know, for 50-50 to be the case. But it is a major challenge. Like, I don't think that courts do a great job recognizing the patterns of domestic violence. And that is my personal perspective, because a lot of advocates for shared parenting say that, you know, family law judges have the tools to identify when that's taking place. But I did talk to a number of families that there was just not room to include them in the article where there was evidence of domestic violence. And, and even still, they ended up having to share the parenting 50-50. And especially um, when the domestic violence is not physical, if it's coercive control, if it's psychological manipulation, if, if it's the non-physical forms of domestic violence, it makes it even harder for, let's say, a judge or for someone to, to actually see what's, what's necessarily happening behind closed doors. That is exactly right. And, you know, I talked to one family where the outcome was 50-50 was and now, but, but the children are required to be able to call the other parents when they're at, you know, the, the, the fathers and yet they aren't, they're not allowed to do that. And, and it's a really challenging thing for the, the mother in that situation because she's like, well, is it really worth going to court again over this where you know, it's just going to cost me a bunch of money. And, and it seems like in certain cases, in certain courtrooms, there is this, even though there, there, there might not be a presumption, like in Kentucky, there is this preference for 50-50, and she feels like she might just have the same outcome. And that's the debate that so many parents have, you know, when it comes to, you know, litigation or coming back and trying to modify a judgment of divorce or pursuing something. That's the debate that so many people and so many parents have. Sushma, this article is brilliant. It has so many different perspectives, a really in-depth article with interviews from so many different people. Tell everybody where they could learn more about your work and you know, read and, and find out about everything that you're doing and, and read all your writings. Well, you can go to 
sushmasubramanian.com. That's my website. And uh, you can uh, read some of my articles there. Of course, you mentioned my book, How to Feel, which is on Amazon. But I do want to say one final thing about the the shared parenting idea, which is I, I think that there are a lot of good things happening here, which is that I think that moving away from custody language to parenting time, I think that's pretty universally accepted as a, a really good thing because custody, like you were talking about how this current system encourages like fighting between the parents. And I think custody is like a prize you're winning, whereas parenting time is like something that you figure out or you reach an agreement on. And and also I think that there's increased support for joint physical custody, like, you know, a, a good amount of time with both parents. And, you know, it's great to have that kind of support. Maybe where it goes too far is the idea of 50-50. Like if you think of most of our families um, that are intact, in a lot of families, even though parenting might be shared, it's not necessarily 50-50 right? Because you're trying to figure out the best schedule for your family and that's highly individual, right? And then there's also this question of whether it's the starting point in negotiations should be 50-50 because that does create an uphill battle for anybody who doesn't want that, right? And so that's, I think, where the real conflict lies. Toshima, I want to thank you for coming on the Shine On podcast. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Episode 35. What a show. Two guests. First on the docket, Regina DeMeo and I talk about the Netflix documentary, The Tinder Swindler. This was an absolute blast and a lot of fun. And producer Dave, how great was journalist and author Sushma Subramanian? I couldn't get enough of this interview and our featured guest spot with her on the Shine On podcast. Another jam-packed episode, Evan. Fantastic job. And producer Dave, a big thanks to you as always. And thank you. To all the listeners, you can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, YouTube and Pod 617. Follow the podcast, send in your comments and questions to Evan at shinadivorce.com and follow me on social media for the latest content. You can find all episodes and articles highlighting our featured Shine on podcast guest at shinadivorce.com. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.